You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Jason Resign. I'm a global opinions writer here at the Washington Post. Uh, I'm really pleased uh, today to be joined on the stage uh, with global opinions contributing writer for the Post, my dear friend Rana Ayub, who's visiting from India. Uh, Rwandan-born human rights defender, also good friend, Anais uh, Kanimba. And Arij Al-Sadan, new friend, uh, a Saudi-American human rights activist. Thank you for joining us for a very important conversation. Uh, I want to welcome you all, but before we get started, I'd also like to recognize a dear friend of mine who is with us today, uh, the Iranian photojournalist Yalda Moyari, who is um, here, right here. Uh, I just want to tell you a, a, a quick bit about her. She was arrested in Tehran last year during the anti-government protests following the death of Masa Amini in custody that sparked a year of uh, protests throughout Iran. Uh, she has been in and out of prison uh, over the years for speaking truth to power. Uh, she is one of my first collaborators from my time in Iran. Uh, she was also our wedding photographer, so it's a really <laughs> wonderful thing for her to be here today. Um, I want to start by asking all of you to briefly share a bit about your own personal stories uh, and what brought you here um, today. Rana, uh, as you know better than anybody else, uh, India has fallen to one of the lowest press freedom rankings in the world, a country that has more newspaper readers on a daily basis than there are citizens of the United States of America. It's a particularly startling fact that a once thriving democracy has fallen so far. Uh, what's it like to be a journalist, a woman journalist, a Muslim woman journalist in Narendra Modi, Modi's India today? Well, um, thank you, Jason. Thank you to each one of you. Uh, you know, it's, it is, um, it's a tough time convincing people in the world that India, the world's largest democracy, can be a predator of the press of 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 press freedom. Um, I go back to India in the next ten days to face three trials in a span of one week. Um, every time I have to leave India, I have to I have to basically get court permission. I've been stopped at the airports uh, from flying out. There's a threat to my life. Um, but more than that, Jason. I mean, of course, the Jason has introduced the fact that um, I'm a journalist. I'm a, I'm a woman, a Muslim woman, who is critical of the Modi government, a man uh, who is practicing a majoritarian politics that we have not witnessed so far in a, in a, in a democracy like India, who's feted by the world over, including in the United States, as, uh, as some kind of a bulwark to China, right? We always say India should be the bulwark against China, but while being the bulwark against China, we are resembling China right now. As, as Jason said, we are, the 160, we are on the 162nd position in the World Press Freedom Index. Three weeks before I got here, um, the Modi government raided an, a news organization called the News Click. And um, young journalists, 21, 22-year-old interns, had income tax, enforcement directorate officials, top 
cops at their doorstep early in the morning, confiscating their gadgets, confiscating their laptops. That's the life of a journalist in India, right? And that's the story that the world needs to know, that the world's largest democracy is slipping down under. And it is our responsibility collectively to talk about countries where we believe that press freedom might not be, or, 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 or human rights might not be in the position that uh, that the world expects. We are on paper a secular, inclusive, plural, plural democracy, but we are far from it as, as we see it right now. Thank you for that. I, I want to uh, draw your attention to this image. This is a full page ad that we ran uh, in support of Rana a year or so ago uh, when she was facing one of her many trials in India. It's part of the Washington Post Press Freedom Partnership where we really try and stand up for journalists in trouble um, around the world through a group of community organizations uh, that, that focus on these issues. Anis, um, people in the audience and at home may know your story a bit uh, and that of your dad's, Paul Rosasagabina. Uh, but the part of the story that didn't make it into the film Hotel Rwanda is about your dad being abducted and arrested uh, back in Rwanda. You were and your sister were adopted uh, by Paul in 1994. Um, you later worked tirelessly uh, along with your sister to campaign for his release. As a matter of fact, it was just over a year ago that you and I met downstairs in the coffee shop to strategize on ways about getting the story more attention. Your dad is now uh, thankfully home. Uh, he saved your life and then you and your sister worked to save his. Talk about that experience. Thank you, uh, Jason, and hi, everyone. Um, yes, so I was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Uh, both my parents, who were Tutsi, uh, were killed in the very first day of the genocide. And my sister and I, that you see over here, Karine, were very fortunate to be adopted by my aunt and my uncle, Paul and Tassiana We had a seamlessly beautiful childhood. We, we grew up in Belgium uh, and then came to the United States. But it was seemingly beautiful because we actually, instead of that, because we were running away from our country. Uh, even though we thought we were safe, we were not actually safe because the Rwandan government was persecuting my father and anybody who spoke against him or spoke the truth of what's happening in Rwanda. Uh, the movie Hotel Rwanda gave him a platform to talk about these human rights violations constantly happening in Rwanda. The fact that there's a dictatorship in Rwanda, there is no freedom of speech in Rwanda. Uh, many crimes have been committed in the DRC because of the current regime in Rwanda. And those are the things that my father was saying that displeased the dictatorship. And that led him into uh, being kidnapped in 2020. Um, he was here in, in, in Texas, actually, during the pandemic. And the government did a, an, a um, crazy, almost could be another movie. They, they, they lured him to Dubai and then uh, took him against Hill's will to Kigali, and he woke up not knowing where he was and a place where he knew he was going to be killed right away. And this is when my sister and I found out on, on August 31st, 2020, that our father was in jail and in, in Rwanda. And so we were very lucky to meet many people in Washington, D.C., and Jason, uh, but also people realized that in Rwanda, um, the story that they've been hearing was not the actual story. What happened to my father is actually what's happening to many Rwandans on a daily basis. Anybody who speaks the truth, who, speaks what, who, who says what the government doesn't want to hear, finds themselves in prison. And often they don't have any due process and they languish in there 
um, without any hope of being able to be released. And sadly, this is happening when Rwanda is one of the biggest partners of the United States in the EU. Um, and so there's a big disconnect of having partners like Rwanda who are kidnapping people, who are imprisoning political, uh, political activists, activists in general. And um, we hope that my father's story uh, can show to the world that you know, Rwanda is what it is and can, things can change very quickly. Thank you, thank you. Um, I unfortunately know a little bit about uh, what it means to uh, exercise your freedom of expression in places where that's not respected. I was the Post Bureau Chief in Tehran. 2014, I was arrested. I spent a year and a half in prison. Um, finally released after uh, many efforts by the US government, this newspaper, and others. Uh, but it was a, a long and, and, and difficult process. Arij, your brother Abdul Rahman was arrested in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia in 2018, and he remains in prison now. Can you give us a kind of background on, on what led to his arrest and what his current status is at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So my brother, uh, a, dear, a dear friend to me and a very wonderful uh, brother and son, um, humanitarian aid worker, he was kidnapped uh, from his office where he worked at the Red Crescent, Red Cross uh, headquarters office in Riyadh. And um, without a warrant, he was taken away. And since then, we weren't able to find any information on his whereabouts or why they took him and uh, or what was his condition. And although we tried to reach out, uh, my family Ria tried to reach out to um, uh, to the to the secret police office where we heard that they they are the ones who took him. They kept denying any knowledge until a full month of trying. Then they finally acknowledged that they did have him. But even though they acknowledged that they did have him, they denied us any knowledge or communication with him. Um, that happened during a mass crackdown on peaceful activists and online critics of the government in Saudi Arabia in 2018. Um, and uh, the situation continued uh, of his enforced disappearance, denying us any contact, denying us any knowledge of my brother. Uh, until two years later, um, after international pressure, he was allowed a one-minute phone call where at least we got to somehow confirm that he's still alive. And then from that point, he got disappeared again for another year. So it was three years of being held without a charge. Then he was brought to a sham secret trial. And again, because of international pressure, he was brought to a secret sham trial only to be sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, followed by 20 years travel ban for tweeting. So, um, and during the time he was imprisoned, um, we weren't completely in the dark. We used to receive um, uh, information from witnesses that he'd been brutally tortured. He was, he was held in solitary confinement for years. He was tortured with electric shocks, beating, sleep deprivation. They broke his hand, smashed his fingers, saying, this is the hand you tweet with. I mean, he ended up in the intensive care unit for days, more than five days, fighting for his life, unconscious. Um, Unfortunately, my brother continued to be forcibly disappeared until today, even though after uh, the sentencing, we weren't allowed any communication again afterwards. We weren't allowed any uh, phone calls or visits, no matter how, how, how many times my family tried to Riyadh, all the requests have been either ignored or denied. Um, the, the, I mean, after, after he'd been sentenced, um, 
again, we had no communication. Um, and uh, I mean, this just tells you how the situation in, in Saudi Arabia, my brother is not the only one. There are thousands mm. of other activists, and not only activists, they're just people who are you know, tweeting or commenting on situation, on the you know, uh, things that are happening in Saudi Arabia about unemployment or uh, their struggle to find a job or women's situation. Um, there are women activists who have been imprisoned and tortured and even though after international pressure they got released, they're still under house arrest, they can't leave the country. So unfortunately, uh, I mean, uh, last year, just last year, the United Nations have actually declared that, um, that my brother is uh, wrongfully and unlawfully um, uh, arbitrarily detained and called for his release, immediate release and unconditional release. Yet the Saudi government haven't, uh, haven't responded and they continue to deprive us from any communication at all. Thank you for sharing those very painful uh, details about his situation. It strikes me that, um, that these three governments um, have a couple of things in common. One, uh, incredible abuses of power against individual citizens, um, but also very cozy relations with the United States of America. Um, in all three cases, uh, they rely on the US for financial assistance, military assistance, security aid, um, Rana, I want to ask you, what do you expect from the U.S. government um, on these human rights issues, in particular uh, in India, but around the world? Well, the United States has its own Committee for Religious Freedom, which releases its annual report on religious freedom. And every year, the United States itself, in its, its own State Department, releases a very scathing report on the abuse of minorities, Muslim minorities in India, the same State Department. So it's not like President Biden or Secretary Tony Blinken is not aware of what's happening in India. It's like it's, they know what is happening, and they still and they still give him the highest state honors right and they still give it they uh, they give him all kinds of you know he was he was a state guest and we saw the kind of uh, i mean it, it would not surprise you that the prime minister of the world's largest democracy narendra modi has not held a single press conference in the last nine years in power it has never happened in india before the world's largest democracy the only time he was subjected to a question was when he was at the white house two months ago and when the journalist sabrina siddiqui from wall street journal actually asked him a question on democratic rights and human rights that journalist was subjected to a virtual lynch mob after which the white house had to give a statement just one question in nine years, and that's a repercussion. You can only imagine what journalists like us are going through on a daily basis. So I, I believe that the U.S. is very well aware of what India is doing, what Saudi Arabia is doing, or for that matter, many dictatorships are doing. You know, we are very unpopular dictators. Everybody knows that there's dictatorship, that it, it, it fulfills all the indices or characteristics of a dictatorship. It's just that we are not willing to call out those dictatorships because our own strategic interests. So real politics at the end of the day, dominates human rights and democratic rights. When anybody questions Narendra Modi government about journalists like us who are being, uh, you know, who are being uh, attacked in the way that we are, and, and, and a lot of government officials will be like, oh, but she is she's speaking at platforms, right? She's speaking at international platforms. Who's stopping them? Who's stopping people, people like me? The thing is, when you don't kill a journalist, when you don't jail a journalist, there are ways in which you silence a journalist. We call it death by a thousand cuts. 
right? I spent more time fighting court cases than doing my reportage, and that for me is the ultimate humiliation of a journalist. I have my bank accounts frozen. I mean, the easier way out is to make peace with the government, which I'm not going to do over my dead body, because some of us have the unpopular job of documenting what's happening in India, in the world's largest democracy, and that's the price we pay for speaking truth to power. So if anything, the United States needs to speak up for human rights, uh, which it believes it stands up for, but I don't think it's walking the talk on this, and I don't expect them to do much. As truth be told, I don't expect them to do much on this. I want to pose a question to both Anis and Arij. Um, both Saudi Arabia and Rwanda have invested uh, a lot of capital, a lot of time, a lot of energy um, into uh, reforming their images around the world. Uh, the experiences of, of both of your families uh, and many other people in both countries tells a very different story. Um, are these attempts uh, working? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to ask if the, the, the reforms are real. Are the attempts to reform the image working? And if they are, how can we counteract those? I, I believe it's working. And I think that's the scary part. It's because it's working and we're being lied to, knowing we're being lied to, and we're turning the other chicken. And that's the problem. You know, in Rwanda, for instance, um, the government, it's, it's a dictatorship. You know, we have an election again next year, and President Kagame is going to run again by himself. And, you know, he, that will give him over 30 years of, of power in one country. You know, and this is the kind of story that we hear every single day from different uh, dictatorships. People stay in power, and they use a system that we value here to lie that they actually are uh, doing reforms. You know, and for our specific case in Rwanda, you know, the Rwanda uses practice transnational repression. They use Pegasus on my sister and my cousin to follow us and to try to track us to know our every single move. Those are things that are not allowed in the United States. You know, and we have uh, tools to deter these kind of behaviors um, when we see, but we just, we just choose not to use them. And instead, we allow ourselves to listen to these lies, which I call lies, they call reforms, but these are lies that we're being told. And we have to stand up to the truth and say the truth. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's working to some extent, but I don't think it's working exactly like at the same time, it's actually shining a light on the human rights abuses because a lot of these abuses are fresh. For example, the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, I know it's not as prominent as before, but still it keeps coming up because obviously the issue was never resolved. I mean, the, the, the case of Jamal Khashoggi still live, live with us every day because the abuses are ongoing. The issue was never solved. Freedom of speech is, is completely forbidden in Saudi Arabia. Um, so I, I think uh, it all depends also to world leaders who are the ones who actually allow it to, to succeed, like all this whitewashing, sport washing. If they're not helping the, uh, the international communities, human rights organizations to actually support our call for, for human rights, then they are allowing these dictators to win with their sport washing and entertainment. Doesn't it also require people in those industries and in sports and entertainment taking a stand? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the things, you know, once they are educated about, they are aware of these human rights abuses, they should be taking a stand and actually making their 
you know, uh, stand clear on human rights. Um, even if they still want to go to Saudi Arabia and do business, that's fine. But can you ask about human rights? Can you ask about individual cases? Can you uh, ask to go see and visit the prisoners? You can actually, you do have the power. Celebrities and, and sports stars do have the power to make a change, to help us. So if you decide to go to Saudi Arabia, please do help us. Ask about human rights. Ask about why Abdurrahman, my brother, a humanitarian aid worker, is still forcibly disappeared, a son of an American. Why women rights activists are not allowed to leave the country? Why are they still on travel ban? I mean, these are very simple, basic questions that you have the power to, to do and to help us. Anis, one follow-up for you. I mean, Rwanda relies on the U.S. government for how much in, in aid every year? I think almost over 100 million. Which is a massive amount for, for, for their budget. Mm -hmm. um, during the time of advocating for your dad, did, did you see any movement by the U.S. government to maybe suspend any of that aid? And was it something that they would even uh, entertain doing? Yes, they were very, they were, let me take a step back. During our advocacy, we always made sure that any kind of aid that was humanitarian would not be cut because we understand that what the government is doing should not be, uh, the people of Rwanda should not be victim of what the government is doing. They're already victim to, be, to begin with. And so we were very sure that the aid would continue, but we made sure that the aid that does not go to humanitarian issues will be questioned. You know, Rwanda is a military ally to the United States. You cannot have a military ally that's using uh, national security tools like Pegasus and others on American citizen. How is money being used? And so these are the kind of questions we need to understand and, and how this, and this relationship, which I believe are uneven and unequal partnerships. And um, you know, the United States has the, the right and should stand up to the human rights abuses happening in Rwanda and should not continue to, to aid the country in giving them more money in the military and other places like that. The toolkit uh, for dictators is vast, um, and it uh, is often very uh, targeted, but it's also often quite blunt. Rana, can you talk about some of the ways that uh, the Modi government has taken to uh, quash dissent, in addition to putting you through legal um, trials over periods of years. What are other things that they're doing on a massive level? Well, at this point of time, some of India's best-known human rights act activists, student activists, are all behind bars. Uh, some of our finest lawyers are behind bars. Some of our best human rights defenders are behind bars. Um, you know, Washington Post has itself done uh, an exhaustive investigation on how uh, Pegasus is being used on journalists, activists, and how evidence is being planted on human rights activists who are critical of the Modi government. And based on that evidence that is being planted on their, on their laptops and phones, those journalists uh, or those activists are behind bars. At this point of time, you know, uh, we, we used to have the most robust press. But at this point of time, uh, we have a press that speaks the language of the Modi government. So how, what, are, what are the bastions of, of or what are the contours of a democracy? 
states that your free press should speak should speak uh, truth to power. This is the panel about truth to power. The most disappointing bit is that Modi government has co-opted independent journalism. He has silenced independent journalism. He is using surveillance. Um, I mean, Pegasus uh, has been, uh, you know, uh, uh, has been used on dissenters and critics. Our human rights activists are behind bars. So there are very, very few people who are left to, 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 to do the critical speaking. At this point of time, you know, each earlier when I used to speak inter on international forums, I would not feel the fear. But some of us are self-censoring ourselves because we don't know whatever language, whatever speech that we give internationally is going to be used against us once we go back home. So I think a lot of us are self-censoring ourselves. We don't even have the platforms uh, that we used to have earlier to speak uh, about the Modi government. Thank you. Um, this has been a vitally important conversation. I appreciate all of you for joining us. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time. We have to wrap there. I want to point out I'm, I'm not Sally Jenkins. Uh, but you should read her work. She's fantastic. And you should read mine. Uh, but, and but you should subscribe to the Washington Post. Can I have just one last one? I mean, because this is a panel really on, 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 okay, on truth to power. Just one last line, Please, though. Say it. We must speak for journalists in Palestine. Uh, they are fighting an unpopular battle. This is about truth to power. Almost 45 journalists have been killed. In any other part of the world, if that many number of journalists would have been killed, there would be outrage. We need to show solidarity with those journalists. That's all. Thank you so much. Well, hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be back because I am now going to be talking to the wonderful and great Annabelle Hernandez, who is a breathtakingly brave investigative journalist. Driven into exile, she still returns to Mexico to report on the violence and corruption that never ceases to destroy her homeland, essentially, right? So, Annabelle, so good to have you with me. It's very hard to overstate the danger of reporting that you do every day. What first compelled you to start doing it? Because you might ask, why? Why do you do this incredibly brave journalism, which puts your own life at such risk? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me here and share not, not just my story, it's the story of many journalists in Mexico that are risking their lives, doing their job, working for the society. So I, I start um, to be a journalist because I really feel this, this passion for me was it's my, my, my way to try to contribute to the truth in this world because I think it's, it's always necessary. But I, I became another kind of journalist when my, when my father was kidnapped and murdered in 2000. I was already a journalist, but that crime that is still impugned, that pain, um, we went to the police to ask for justice, and they asked us for money to, to pay to buy the justice, so we didn't do it. So I don't know who, who killed my father, who was, who is my main figure in my life. So after that moment, I really understand that corruption, that this organized crime that works in Mexico is dangerous for, for everyone. Right, it's a personal journey for you, essentially. It is. Yeah. Well, you face constant death threats in Mexico. When did you decide it was no longer safe for you to live there. What, was the, what, what made you decide, finally, I can't live in Mexico anymore? 
it's too dangerous? Well, it's a long story behind that decision. I, I have been investigating the Sinaloa cartel for almost 20 years. It is, the Sinaloa cartel is the main uh, organized crime in the world, trafficking drugs. And they are like the owners of Mexico since many times before. So I start to investigate the cartel, and I discover that the cartel is just uh, like a hand, um, part of the body of the government. Mm -hmm. So the cartel cannot exist without the complicity of the Mexican government. We are talking about very high level of corruption, presidents, secretaries of state, this kind of corruption. So when I start to put the name with proofs about how presidents, how secretaries are involved with the Sinaloa cartel, they ordered to kill me. The government, not the cartel, the government. So the, the, the main attack against me and my family occurred on the, um, December of 2013. They sent 11 gunmen to my house to kill me. They attacked the house of my neighbors. I, I was not there but was my bodyguards. So I think that the group thought that I was there because my bodyguards were taking care of my house. One of them disappeared. One of my bodyguards were, was taken and beaten for a long time. And um, that, in that moment, for me, was the time to, to leave Mexico. Not because me, because I, I became conscience that I was dangerous for the people around me. Yeah, that you were endangering others, yeah. So painful. Um, one of the things you've been doing is reporting on a side of the drug cartels that we don't really hear enough about, in my view, which is the women behind the cartel leadership. And in fact, your, your latest book, not yet translated here, is about Emma, right, the wife of um, El Chapo, um, the uh, drug kingpin. She pleaded guilty and was released in September from a U.S. prison after serving nearly two years. And he, of course, has a life sentence. Uh, you know, we'll never see him again. But what sort of a woman is Emma, Emma, uh, the wife of Chapo? And, and how involved was she, really, in her husband's lethal world? Uh, uh, you know, and, and are these wives always part of it? After investigating the cartel for all these years, I really start from the beginning, you know, simple things, the names, the structures, how they traffic drugs, then more complicated things, the corruption, the yeah. ties with the uh, businessman. And now I am getting inside the cartel because I think the only way to really understand how these cartels are structured inside, we have to get inside the families. So I changed absolutely the point of view as a journalist to investigate the cartel. No one in Mexico and I think in the world have, have done this yet. I think I'm, I'm the first one. And I think be a woman helped me to have this, you know, kind of po different point of views, move the, move the game and try to, to get inside. So I get inside. And the way to get inside is through the mothers, lovers, wives, daughters, inside the families, in the top of the families, because the Sinaloa cartel is ruled by families. All of them are 
have, have family relationships. Mm -hmm. So to understand who are these men, what they have in them in them, their mind, why why they have in their in their hearts if they have hearts, why wh which is their psychological way to think, why they don't stop. I mean, we're talking about drug lords like, for example, um, Arturo Beltran Leiva, that was the cousin of El Chapo. He he was able to to do every month four hundred millions of dollars. And you, of course, can, 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 can ask as, 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 as to myself, why a man that is able to get 400 millions of dollars per month doesn't stop? Why did he didn't stop? Why did he, okay, this is enough, this is enough, I have enough. Why not? I need to explore his, his mind. And the only way to do it, he will not confess. He will not explain. Throw their, his woman, I was able to get, really get inside and now understand why they do it and how the women have a very crucial role in this. Well, so tell us about Emma. What did you learn That's about her? That's the point. I, what I'm, did you learn about her? So Emma started to be like a toy for El Chapo. She never really have the capacity, and because she is a woman, she will never be able to rule the cartel. But she was a toy. She was the body that a chapo can use to reproduce himself, to create more children that could be the successor of him. That, that he has 18 child. 18, why? Because if someone is murdered, he has the next one. It's incredible how this woman has this role. So Emma has two, 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 two daughters. Um, the first wife of El Chapo has four. The second one was four, has four. Four of this child now are Los Chapitos, the biggest criminal group that is trafficking fentanyl in all the world. So Emma was used as, as, as a, just to procreate yeah. children, mm -hmm. like a trophy, you know? Mm -hmm. How can I say it? How did you penetrate? How did you get into to that fam those families? Well, because I have been almost 20 years, I start to make contacts. Mm -hmm. First with lodgers of them. So these lodgers give me access to be able to do some interviews. And I start, you know, like, like start to open a door and then you have a do another door and you can open it. That's how I penetrate. And I can tell you that now I, I don't know if I search more for them or if, if they <laughs> search more for me because it's, it's a well, very why complicated, do, why, why do they a talk very complicated Why do they talk to you? Why do they talk to you? It's so dangerous for them. I think that some of these people need to talk with someone that can understand that world. Mm -hmm. And when I talk with these people, sometimes, for example, drug lords, 
I try, you know, as, a, as my role as a journalist is not to justify their crimes. I want to know about them. I want to know the structures of corruption. So with me, they can talk openly. And because I am a woman, they are not afraid of me. Mm -hmm. I can tell you many of some, some of these drug lords or their wives or their lovers, uh, when they start to talk with me, sometimes it's like um, psychological therapy, you know? It yeah. could be a very real, 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 real situation. And sometimes they, even men, start to cry. Oh trying to understand, because I think the point is, I do different questions. I don't know how many people you, you have killed. I ask, I don't ask that. I ask, why? What happened to you? When did you, when did you start? Why don't you stop? Do you believe in God? Do you, do you love someone? Mm -hmm. and, and I think these people is not, I think they, they maybe no one asked them these simple questions. For example, to this woman, and, and well, you get all this money, but this bloody money, don't you feel guilty? Because yes, you have your Ferrari, you have your, your Ferragamo, you have your Louis Vuitton, but many other women are sex, sex slaves. They were raped, they were trafficked. They were forced to work for the cartels. Don't you feel that that is not nice? <laughs> and? And sometimes they, they really, they, they really, okay, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, that ask these questions maybe will not change the criminal life of these people. But for me, the answers, the honest answers, Give, give us light where is in that world, world that is very dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. I mean, it's fascinating to have those conversations. Um, in a stunning it's example. It's very sad. Very sad, yeah, it's, it's pathetic too. In a stunning example of how high the corruption in Mexico goes, the one-time Secretary of State, Gennaro Garcia Luna, the very man leading the battle to shut down the drug cartels, was convicted in the US for being on their payroll, right? I mean, how could he get away with it? How could that happen? That the Secretary of State was on the pay of the cartels. That was the official that wanted to kill me right. because I discovered that he was in the payroll of the Sinaloa cartel when he was in charge, when he was in the top of his power in Mexico. I was able also to uh, prove that he has a lot of properties, money, you know, cars, things that he cannot justify with his salary or, or with his, um, his um, public declarations. So um, that's why he, he wanted to kill me. And even I prove all that, I mean, I'm talking about 2008, 2009, 2010. No, nothing happened to him because he is, he's not the problem. He's just a little part of this criminal system where are, again, presidents, 
um, secretaries, very, very big and important businessmen, banks, very important um, uh, business, very famous singers. I mean, we, 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 ha we have this cartel that is really like a virus. Yeah. And I think that the world doesn't get it yet. Talk I think that, that now, now I, 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 I was able to get the secret diary wrote by the son of one of these main um, boss of the Sinaloa cartel, Vicente Zambada. And what I discovered through this uh, diary is that the Sinaloa cartel has presence in the 70% of the planet. Wow. <laughs> so so we are talking about that. The I penetration that, is complete. I think, I think the society doesn't get yet that this criminal system is one of the most dangerous thing for our democracies and for our lives. See what is happening here with the fentanyl. Right, which I mean, uh, fentanyl, you know, obviously is 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 one of the major things that is the issue here. I just wanted to ask you about that because there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which said that they are going to give up manufacturing fentanyl. Is that true? What is it true? <laughs> the, the piece in the Wall Street Journal. Let me just find that. Which said that the cartel is telling its members to stop making and trafficking the drug, to take the heat off them from U.S. law enforcement. Do you think that is true? I think that the many media doesn't get that the, the Sinaloa cartel has a huge, huge, uh, how can I say it, operation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.